Hey there, everybody. This is Terry Mitchell from Voice on Fire interview series. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Leanne Butterworth. And I'm really fascinated to find out more from her with regards to her um, training that she has created called Lose Your Mind Empathy Training. And it sounds really interesting, Leanne. Welcome to interview on uh, for Voice on Fire. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent, excellent. And where are you located? You're in Queensland, I believe. I am. I'm in sunny Brisbane. The sunny Brisbane. How exciting for you. I'm down in wintry Melbourne, so, you know, I'll sit here quietly envious of you. It's beautiful outside. Isn't We've been getting on our bikes. It's nice. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I find that this, the, the whole what do we do during COVID-19 seems to come up in, in, in any of these uh, conversations that I've been having. It's uh, how are you managing with regards to the restrictions and how are you finding that? Um, I actually don't mind it. I work from home anyway. There's a difference in terms of my kids are here, but they're only here three days a week because we have an office as well and they go up to the office two days a week. Awesome. Um, but it's kind of nice having them around most of the time. <laughs> but no, other than that, we're sort of getting outdoors more. I've taught my children how to do weeding. Um, we're oh. getting out on the bike. <laughs> it's, it's actually... That's very good. That's, that's called home education, I believe. <laughs> so if that's what I have to do for the good of the nation, then so be it. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's let's start by finding out a little bit more about your training program. Now, I really love the title. So, lose your mind, empathy training. Let's share. Start starting with that. Where did the title come from? What's it about? And and just let people know what it is you actually do. Okay. So, lose your mind, empathy training sort of has a pre-COVID and a post-COVID. <laughs> um, so, pre-COVID, lose your mind, empathy training started as a virtual reality experience for mental illness. So wow. what we would do, we would give people a simulation of what it was like to have a mental illness and then we'd make them talk about it. Wow. So not only did they have then an empathy for going, whoa, that must be awful. Mm -hmm. They then went, oh, it's actually really hard to talk about it and when I do talk about it, I just want to feel heard. It's uncomfortable. I feel judged. And then we do a whole workshop now, whether that's um, half a day or a couple of hours about how to make someone feel heard, what language to use, what, um, what they need, what you need, how, what's the consequence of making someone feel dismissed. So originally it was this virtual reality experience, and I still have it, but at the moment I'm not up in front of people speaking and then certainly not putting VR on their face. So that then sort of morphed into this lose your mind, find your heart, which is really the, the guts of what we do is getting out of the intellectual of giving advice, intellectualizing, um, telling people it'll be okay, sympathizing that real um, brain response into a find your heart. No, no, no. People want to be heard and valued and visible and loved. And how do you go about creating that connection? Yeah. So whether that's in a workplace or a community or a family. Mm -hmm. So then from that, I pulled out all the parts of, because what I was finding was as good as the VR is, it's really good in certain groups, but some people I'm finding don't know what empathy is. 
Wow. Okay. And there's this big misperception about what empathy is, what it entails, what it's personal cost is so a lot of people say well i can't be empathetic because i don't have the strength or i don't know what to do or so it's coming right back to basics and going no 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 empathy is sharing the feelings and understanding the feelings of another person and responding appropriately Mm -hmm. but then if you take that a step further a lot of people don't even think that feelings belong at work Mm, yes and that they're allowed to have feelings and that if i don't understand my feelings how do i understand another person's feelings and then how do i then empathize so what i've done is i've created an online course which is called empathy first okay yes and what it does is it goes right back to basics and it says well why is empathy important Mm -hmm. what are the business implications of empathy Mm -hmm. what even is it Mm. How do we, so then we talk about self-care in empathy because I can't take good care of you if I'm not taking good care of myself. And if I don't have good boundaries, then that's not empathy. Yep. And we talk about listen to connect, which is how do I genuinely listen to you and make you feel heard and valued and visible? And then finally, oh, now it's my turn to talk. What do I say? So we've got really simple frameworks around that. Yeah. And then we start, but the whole way through, it's all active, 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 active. So as much as I might speak for 20 minutes on a video, we've then got activities to do, self-reflection, quizzes, um, other videos to watch. So ultimately, what started as a virtual reality simulation of mental illness has turned into, how do I make the world a more empathetic place? Wow. Awesome. That's the short version. And that is a really powerful version. You probably saw I was nodding my head quite a lot, agreeing 100% with what you were saying. Um, I'm really fascinated to find out from you, where did it all start? What actually was the seed of thought that got you thinking along the lines of, wow, hang on a minute, there's this thing that we don't have. What started that? Do you recall that there was a particular instance that that prompted all of this? So there's probably a couple the first one is i mean i created it i created the simulation as part of another business Mm -hmm. and then the more we did this simulation and then the training and i went to iowa um so a lady online whose son had taken his own life Mm -hmm. she said i blame stigma and i want anti-stigma training you're coming to iowa so i went up okay Okay. So I did 18 workshops in 10 days in Iowa. Wow. And these are half-day okay. workshops for police okay. Okay. and CEOs and psychologists. So, and we did it again and again. And the more I kept doing that, I kept going, okay, this isn't about mental illness necessarily. Mm-hmm. This is about being a human first and your role second. Absolutely. So I kept that these themes just kept coming out. So I pulled them out. But the other thing that I realized was in one of the workshops, I told my story because in my mind it was, okay, I'm facilitating this. I've got clinical psychs doing some mental illness stuff. I've got the VR and it was other than me. Mm -hmm. 
But I told my story, which is I had postnatal depression and a lot of people around me didn't know that it was postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. I didn't acknowledge that it was. And so it was really late diagnosed. And so by me telling my story, I went, oh, that's why I care so much. That's why it matters. That's why. And it was giving my story validity. And so whenever I'm writing course content or whenever I'm filming course content, it always comes back to what would I have wanted in that moment? Mm -hmm. And so that's the drive. And now it's going, okay. I mean, I didn't get diagnosed till my youngest was three. Wow. So, and it got pretty bad, but mine sort of presented a bit differently. Mine presented as rage and a lot of people were sort of saying, hey, it's normal, like we all get through it, just have a drink. Um, so for me, it's that real driver going, no, 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 take a step back. Like if, if let's say 25% of the population are struggling with some sort of mental health issue in their lifetime, mm-hmm. the other 75% need to listen. So, yeah, and I mean, that's the whole narrative out there in in terms of mental health at the moment is you've got to talk up, you've got to talk up, you've got to talk up. But if nobody knows how to listen to make you feel (laughs) heard, important, valued, visible, Mm -hmm. um, normal, you're you're not speaking up, you're not being honest, you're not going to reach out. Um, So that's my goal is not really for the 25% as much as I say, look, feelings are normal and that's all cool and seek help. But it's for the 75% to go get out of judgment, open your heart and truly listen to make people feel connected. And inadvertently by explaining a lot of the concepts, we then reduce the stigma of mental illness. 100% could not agree with you more and I think you are explaining that so eloquently because it totally is without a shadow of doubt in my mind all about being uh, validated being heard and 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 most importantly as you say it could be you know easy enough to get somebody who's gone through a difficulty to speak up and, and reach out for the help but if it falls on deaf ears what's the point they don't get validated, they don't feel heard and they're less likely to then reach out again because their first experience, which probably took an enormous wealth of courage, has made them step back and think, I'm not trying that again, it hurts too much, I've been rejected, people don't want to know me and it becomes self-judgment again and it just reinforces all of those already not very positive feelings. So in terms of echoing where you're at, I totally agree that the, the importance of what you're doing is, is helping the conversations happen and helping people to understand that even in a workplace, emotions are normal. And when we say normal, God, we don't really, we don't really even know what normal is really, do we? But in normalisation, meaning that we feel like we fit in. We feel like we belong. We feel like we're not that, you know, that um, one standout in the crowd, so to speak, in a time when we don't want to be. Um, yeah, I'm, fascinated, I'm fascinated to understand about that um, virtual reality. And how did that come to pass? as an introduction to what you're doing because I, I think that's just amazing to be able to give somebody a chance to feel that they can be immersed in what it feels like. How did that come about? Um, originally, the project that I was working on, um, 
they had used boxes before. So they'd put people in a box on the Queen Street Mall for 24 hours or 48 hours. So when we were talking about it, I said, well, what if we used a literal box mm -hmm. and put like a screen and you had to do a year three origami, uh, year three math test or some origami or something and yeah. have all these things going. But it was a literal box. Mm -hmm. And I talked to some people in the arts and said, hey, what do you think about this? And they said, well, well let's think about making the box smaller. So then I talked to some virtual reality people and went, okay. So what we did was we created a 360 degree video. Wow. Okay. So in this video, you're sitting and listening to a talk. And at the end, I say, what was the talk about? Mm -hmm. Now, during that experience, so it's only six minutes. Mm -hmm. And that includes the introduction of, hey, welcome to Lose Your Mind. Mm -hmm. um, but in that experience, in that three and a half minutes where you're listening to a talk, I superimposed voices mm -hmm. and some unpleasant hallucinations. And what we do is by the end of it, when I say to you in the workshop, what was the name of the talk? And everybody goes, what? Uh, mm, hmm. Hmm. It's on the tip of my tongue. Oh. So what we do is, and she says it a lot. The speaker says it a lot. So it's not a trick question. Yep, yep. Um, but what we do is we show that by stressing you out, because people fog up my goggles and they, mm. um, it's not a pleasant experience. No, no, not at all. But what we do is by stressing you out, we impact your short-term memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that learning in and of itself is, okay, mm -hmm. when I'm stressed, my if I'm talking to somebody and I tell them something and they're stressed, they're not going to remember. Yeah, what a powerful lesson. But, yeah, exactly. So the other thing about, so it is unpleasant. It's three and a half minutes, it's quite unpleasant. Um, and everybody knows that going in. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If people, and I tell everybody, you don't have to finish the experience. Like, that's cool. Take it off. Know your limits. But by taking it off and going, no, thank you very much, I'm out. Mm -hmm. I know my limits. That's gone past it. I'm out. Mm -hmm. Two things from that. First one is well done on knowing your limits. Yeah, absolutely. More power to you. Second thing, take a deep breath and go, oh, thank God I can take that off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Someone who is genuinely struggling with psychosis, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, cannot click their fingers, take it off and go, no, thank you very much. Exactly. Yep. So when it comes to an empathy activity, just the ability to go, mm -mm, no, 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 I'm out. And it is quite full on and there's a lot in there from a few different mental illnesses. But even if you pull it apart and go, oh, look, even if you were seeing this, even if you were just smelling this, feeling this, because we do slight sound, touch and smell, that's enough to distract you. That's mm -hmm. enough to cause tension. That's enough to divert your attention. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot in there. Mm. Um, so it's especially good for police. Mm, so yes. I'm a, 
Yeah. I talk to a lot of cops in the USA mm-hmm. um, and they they got it. A lot of them at the end of the course gave me a hug and said, I just want to go home and hug my daughter. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So it, it's, yes, originally it was about this one specific mental illness. But when you blow it up mm-hmm. and expand it, it's about being a good human who understands other humans without judgment and understanding where mental illness comes from, yeah. not this is what mental illness is. Because mm. a lot of the conversation is this is what it is. This is what depression is. Anxiety is, needs to be managed. Managing mental yeah. health in the world. Like, bleh. It's a yeah. very us and them conversation. They yeah. have realized. Yes. Whereas I sort of go, no, no, no. This is what mental illness feels like. Mm-hmm. This is what needing to be heard feels like. Yeah. And we are all susceptible we all have a level at which our bucket overflows we all have good days and bad days and even if it's not in the mental illness space mm-hmm. it could be that your dog died Absolutely. you had a crap day you're going through a divorce whatever mm-hmm. and you want to share that with someone you don't want advice coming back Absolutely. You- you don't want to be told what you should just be doing. You just oh, want yeah. to be heard. Mm-hmm. And that almost amplifies as you struggle more and more and more. But even if it's, hey, at the end of the day, hey, I had a shit day, and your partner or whoever goes, oh, you should just leave your job. And you go, oh, not empathy. I wasn't asking you for advice. <laughs> I so understand exactly what you're saying. And that whole sense... What comes to me when I hear you talking about that is is to give you a bit of insight into my background and why this resonates so strongly for me is um, way back in the day, several decades ago, I trained and qualified as a psychiatric nurse. And uh, back in the day, there was a book that had been doing the rounds and it was probably published a while beforehand, but it was still seemingly quite popular, the Us Versus Them book. It's like, you're okay, I'm okay. Now, I say it's an Us Versus Them book because... Quite literally, I found people going, oh, I'm okay, you're the one with the mental illness. That's no. not, not exactly how it was said, but it may as well have been said that way. You have the mental illness. And it was like when I worked inside, and, and to give you an, an insight into the background of my psych nursing training, I did um, uh, work at the um, acute admissions ward in the, in the country city that I lived in. And the acute admission ward was really busy. And it was also on the grounds of the hospital so that there were long-term patients who would just escape their little rooms and come into the acute admission ward and it caused chaos. And the interesting thing I found with all of this was that I myself was considered to be not perhaps the most uh, respected staff member because I actually cared. And I mean that. And if if any of those colleagues watch this, I still will stand by my word because I cared. I cared what those poor people, because I myself had gone through a horrendous upbringing of all sorts of things, which led me to have a little bit in a way and a small kind of similarity, a long undiagnosed condition. Um, I had crippling social anxiety, uh, absolute 
crippling to the point where catching a bus was just like the end of the earth to me. It was just, I couldn't. Yeah, um, and at one point I also, I finally found out many decades later that I had post-traumatic stress disorder from my early upbringing. Now, in a lot of ways, I'm okay with knowing that because there, I, I look, there's a whole story behind all of that, but everything that you say about we need to be able to learn how not to sit in judgment of another person. We need to learn how does it feel to actually have a crisis going on within us that we don't have the coping mechanisms, the language, the skills, or the previous experience to deal with, maybe not even the support networks around us to go to. And everything yeah. that you're talking about, you've, you've, you've painted such a glorious picture of what potential is in what you're doing. I absolutely yeah. love the idea that what you suggest is once people start to feel what someone else is feeling and realise that they themselves have those feelings and it's okay to tap into those feelings, acknowledge them, experience them and know that the world's actually still going to be okay, even if it's yeah. a scary, crappy sense of emotion. Just letting people dip into those emotions, like putting their toe in the water is a way of reconnecting them to themselves and realizing that hey you may think that you're okay and that person over there has the illness but at the heart of it and I'm, i strongly believe this now because of COVID 19 and i'm seeing it so much this is an un, unprecedented and i know a lot of people are sick of hearing that word but it is an unprecedented stress on the planet people globally are experiencing something they've never experienced in their lifetime and a lot of people it's bringing out all of the old old war wounds, the old nasties, the things that are sitting inside them that they don't know how to deal with. And I'm seeing it, the conversations I've been having have been really reaffirming to me that people need to feel heard more than yeah. ever. And I applaud you for what you're doing. And I love the idea that you've already taken this somewhere outside of Australia. What are your global plans for this? Because it certainly has global um, implication. Where do you see yourself with that? Um, well, at the moment, it's going to be getting the online course everywhere <laughs> i mean that sort of has no bounds the only thing that has an australian slant to it is i always tell people hey pick up the phone call lifeline or whoever it is so that has a very australian slant to it um i am trying to develop um a list of the helplines in other countries mm -hmm. yep. um so that's the first part, but the second part is, I mean, the virtual reality app, I've been, um, I'm talking to people in the USA who are interested in using it as well as um, Dubai. Oh, wow, okay. And that was sort of this pre-COVID world, but the conversation was still going. Um, but yeah, because we can sort of, the online course part of it, so with or without the VR, the online course part of it can be self-directed. So you can sit at home, just go through week by week and do half an hour, an hour a week. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is we can actually run it all over the world to go, okay, here's the pre-reading. Let's do a Zoom session with me and your team. Mm -hmm. And then here's the, so the content and then here's the activities with your team and then here's the follow-up. So that knows no bounds either, apart from maybe time differences. Yeah. Um, but I've got people in Canada and London who have contacted me to go, hey, I'm really, really keen 
um, to learn more about what you're doing. So as I grow a network of people who are on board, um, but the other thing that I have, which again is global, is a podcast regarding empathy and industry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my most recent one was with a British Army veteran, veteran, because I've done vets as well, mm-hmm. uh, a British Army veteran about mental health in the armed forces. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I've got one coming up with Ireland and mental health in barbering, so hairdressing, wow. barbering. Wow. Um, We've got mental health in sales, engineering, police, mm-hmm. um, musical theatre. So all these different um, professions which both require empathy, empathy for self, with it, which then brings in that mental health aspect. Yep. And that they're universal. I mean, cops all over the world have the same issues and engineers have the same issues. So that's sort of my other plan for world domination and creating... Um, an empathetic world because ultimately we all have ears. So, I mean, we talk, (laughs) we talk in marketing. They're like, cause I'm in an accelerator at the moment and like a business accelerator. And they're like, who is your niche market? I'm like anyone with ears. (laughs) So so from that perspective, we are looking at um, workplace leadership because we truly believe like the mental health culture of an organization begins with empathetic leadership. Mm-hmm. And in all of the podcasts that I've done, it's if the leaders get it, you've got a happier, more effective staff. If the leaders don't get it, it all turns to pot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So it's looking at the leadership of communities and organizations to go, this is how it feels. Mm-hmm. How can you tap into what you're feeling? And how can you have more kindness for those feelings of your own and the feelings of others and understanding that you don't have to understand their experience. You have to understand their feelings because the feelings are real, even if you've never shared that experience and I think people kind of get confused going well I've never been through it so I can't empathize doesn't matter that's not it like you don't have to have been through a divorce to empathize with someone who feels like crap during their divorce you don't have to have had a child sick or child died in order to empathize with a parent who's lost a child like it's the feelings that you're allowed to tap into and I think for some people who and this is that whole perfectionism argument or perfectionism mindset of my value is in what I know not in how I connect Mm. so if my value is in what I know then I have to come up with answers and I have to know this and have the right this and be of service, be of use and actually going, no, 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 no. In that millisecond, what you know may come in handy in a couple of minutes, but in that millisecond between making someone feel understood and heard and making someone feel dismissed and unimportant, that's in your hands. And so there's that self-reflection piece. And I think that's missing a lot out of the 
a lot of the discussions that I see around the world of suicide prevention and mental health and action plans and mental health literacy, it's all them. There's very, very little self-reflection that we have to do. And, oh, well, why didn't they speak up? Maybe I said something. What have I done? Have I contributed? So it's a big discussion. I see it happening all around the world. And so I chime in on LinkedIn everywhere going, no, no, no. Um, but, yeah, so that's the short answer to whatever that question was. <laughs> oh, it totally makes sense in terms of um, just reiterating that it's, it's it, I guess what, what it sort of is going through my mind in response to just our conversation so far is, there's a big blame mentality that we've got going on in society and we're all about blaming somebody and the governments don't help and the news reports don't help. There's always who's the, who's the evil person and who can we blame and who can we point our fingers at and who was responsible for all this. We don't seem to know how to because it's not in our culture, don't know how to take responsibility not only for our actions but our thoughts and our words and being brought up in an environment myself where that was the culture that I was brought up in I didn't understand the disparity that was going on within me versus what I was saying and what I was doing. It felt like I was just so not being authentic, but that word wasn't a, you know, a word I knew at the time. But that whole thing I've seen around is it's easy to blame somebody and not take responsibility. So it's that person's fault because they've got the illness. It's not me. I, I, you know, I, it's got nothing to do with me. It's like, well, hang on a minute, maybe it does. And it comes down to... We don't want to really blame the, the 75 percenters just as a, the loose number that you mentioned earlier. We don't want to blame them. It's not really their fault either. It's a cultural thing. It's become so, um, I think the word is inculcated. It's just so, so inbred and embedded into our society that we don't want to accept responsibility for anything that we say or do in a lot of ways. We'll take the credit when something's fantastic, but we don't want to take responsibility if something's turned to shit because... That actually means owning our emotions and owning our actions and owning our words. And we're just not educated around doing that, I find. That's at least the observation that I've made. And I see where, where everything that you've spoken about, I see a big connection to that where we're actually really at a point where, and I wonder if this rings true for you, where we really would benefit from focusing on helping people to see the way to better understand somebody is to understand yourself, but to not yeah. feel bad if you've said something wrong or if you've acted in a way that perhaps wasn't your best. Um, you know, there's things, you know, I know that there are days if I'm having an absolute pearler of a bad day, I am sure I say something that is just totally not appropriate. I'm sure of it. But I don't... That comes back, yeah. that comes back to vulnerability as well. So this two things there so the first one is vulnerability and being able to go back to somebody and go you know what you told me that thing yesterday and i was having a crap day and i was my head was somewhere else yeah you, it's important that you told me and i thank you for telling me that i apologize that i wasn't paying attention you've got my attention now let's go for a walk and have a chat yep. so that's that circling back and that vulnerability and going you know what i kind of messed that up yeah exactly but in terms of that judgment piece. There are so many people who judge other people. Mm -hmm. 
without first looking at the similar they they're so quick to look for differences that they don't look for similarities yes. and i mean case in point a lot of people vilify those with drug addictions oh they're just druggy that like not yep. worth it and you go yeah but i bet you you drink why do you drink oh to calm my nerves why when do you drink oh on a friday night to calm my nerves and okay and so the more you probe you go well what is it you're what is it you're using alcohol um sex chocolate excess what is it you're doing with oh well i do it in order to not feel my feelings i do it in order to forget i do it in order oh okay now let's say that you're trying to forget an abusive childhood mm -hmm. you're gonna want more than a drink yeah. And when we do the VR as well, I say to people, what do you want after the VR? And a lot of them go, oh, I just want to drink. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, but you vilify people who are using some sort of... Addictive substance. Addictive substance mm -hmm. to, to get through a void, to, to numb, to... And you go, no, no, that's no different. They just happen to have gone up a different path. So one of the podcast that we're doing soon is on prisoners oh wow okay. and empathy for prisoners and the prison system and all that sort of stuff going no 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 everybody has a tendency everybody has a vice everybody has a something where if you're not willing to deal with the emotions that's where you're going and some people have massive emotions to deal with yep. that a friday night drink's not gonna exactly. and i mean and I mean, case in point, we say to people if, and I talk about this in the workshops, is if you, if someone says, I have lung cancer, mm -hmm. first question we ask is, do you smoke? Exactly. And why do we ask that? Is because we want to assert blame. Mm -hmm. That's your problem. You brought that on yourself. Sucks to be you. Yeah. Now, not all lung cancer is self-inflicted. And, yep. and people smoke not because it's a good time but because it soothes their nerves because it's comforting because whatever it is so even if it, they did bring it on themselves they don't deserve judgment hmm. okay if they didn't bring it on themselves they're still dealing with judgment mm -hmm. because they then have to explain no 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 Mm -hmm. And women aged 40 to 50 are the fastest growing um, number of cases of non-smoking related uh, lung cancer. So they're dealing with stigma and judgment as well. Um, and then on top of, <laughs> and then on top of that, people can go, oh, no, I'm not judgmental. Oh, well, out of all of the charities, the Lung Cancer Foundation has some of the lowest public funding because we attach stigma and blame to behaviour. Mm -hmm. Sucks to be you, you got lung cancer. So there aren't the supports available for people with lung cancer as with breast cancer because, oh, poor you. Yes. Um, yep. That sucks. Like genetics plays into that. But so, so people who never smoked are still dealing with the same judgment as someone who did smoke and someone who did smoke or take drugs or whatever it is is dealing with even more judgment 
and they probably smoke to fill a void anyway. So they're... Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's such a complex, multi-layered issue and it's, and it's quite often stems from something that has happened. It's usually always a trigger and but there's always a part to play that there are addictive personalities and there are that's that's something that i've you know read quite a bit about and there are people that it, no matter what might happen in their world no matter what unfolds there is likely to be one trigger which will take them down the pathway of being addicted to something and it is typically it is because they and quite often they're so detached from their emotions it is like a massive disconnect and they've never known that there was a reason why they started smoking, drinking, you know, doing yeah. whatever they were doing that led them to not having the self-control, the boundaries, the understanding, the medical knowledge, the, the multi-layered reasoning yeah, behind everything that happened. So it's, it's really important that we start these conversations about, firstly, let's get out of judgment. We so need to just remove the word judgment from conversation. It is just not helping anyone at all. And people a lot of the time go, and it especially comes from a position of privilege. If mm -hmm. they've never faced adversity, then they've never been in a position where they would be judged. Nobody thinks they're judgmental. It's kind of a throwaway line in a lot of um, like mental health conversations. Oh, listen without judgment. Yeah. How? Like a lot of, because we don't internalize and go, oh, that's right. So when I had postnatal depression, if I had hurt my child, mm -hmm. I would have wanted, expected and deserved the same level of care and compassion because of what had happened and not to be judged and thrown under them. I mean, I would have made the news. Mm. How could a mother do that? And people go, oh, I get it. I know how that, I yep. get it. Yep. So, again, that level of self-reflection going, oh, okay, if I if I'd had this vulnerability mm -hmm. and this level of stress, yep. what might happen? And one of the things I get people to do is to, and you've got to be in the right mindset to do this, but a lot of people talk about gratitude journals, which are lovely. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It's a very, very powerful tool. Good sentiment. To but have. if you want to tap into empathy for other people, go through that list and go, today I'm grateful for, I don't know, the food in the fridge and the roof over my head and my children are healthy. Let's start crossing them off and go, okay, what if I didn't have a roof over my head? What if I didn't have enough food in the fridge? What if my kids weren't healthy? Yep, 100%. How would I feel? How would I react what would i need how would i want to be treated if for whatever reason suddenly my house got repossessed where would i go would i want people to judge me for the fact that i have two small children and i don't have a roof over my head yep think like go down and you've got to be in a, a nice environment usually i get people to do like a five minute meditation before they go into any sort of Mm -hmm. self-reflective activity and then have a hug after it. Hug your dog. Yes, yeah. Um, but start crossing stuff off your off your privileged list and going, oh, okay. What do you If yeah. I lost my house, okay, where would I go? What would I do? And how would I want to be treated? If I go to the food bank, how would I want to be treated? 
So it's kind of just a, that empathy space of going, oh, okay. Absolutely. I well, love this sort of buys into the, um, and I use the, the term as a kind of like a loose reflection on uh, previous news stories, that the cotton wool kid syndrome where a lot of the parents, because of whatever reasoning that was going on in society at the time, where kids were just so overprotected, they weren't allowed to experience anything. They can't fall over. They can't do this. They can't come into contact with germs. By comparison, like <laughs> way back in the, the 60s and 70s when I was a youngster, um, I would go out the front of the house along the, the footpath of the street where the fence line was, and I'd go and pick the grass and eat it. Yeah, because I saw the dog do it. I had no reason to believe that as a human I couldn't do that. But that yeah. would have exposed me to God only knows what. And I'd pull the books apart that I was reading because it was like I loved the colour of the book, so I'd pull it apart and eat it. Now, nah. I'd go out to the tap and I would play in around the taps. And if I'd see a snail, I'd pick it up and I'd play with it. I probably had snail slime all over my hands, play in the dirt and then lick my hands. But... I never really got terribly unwell or sick. Now, that's not to say that those behaviours were appropriate and that, you know, you should always let your kids do wild and crazy things. There's got to be an understanding to which we allow kids or people of any person, um, uh, any age or any situation to experience a hardship. Not to say yeah. that we shouldn't care, but there's got to be a degree to which we allow someone to go through the hard knocks of life to yeah. allow them to experience something that yeah. is the growth mechanism that helps them to realise they've got the coping skills or it's, it's expanded them and helped them to become a stronger, better version of themselves. But at the same time, we need to do it in a way that allows us to support people who are going through those difficulties, like the divorce, like the, the illness, like the loss of job, like the homelessness and all those horrendous things, which, as you say, take those off your list and start thinking, what if I didn't have a roof over my head? And what if I was dealing with a childhood past where I was still being traumatised by, you know, something terrible that had happened? And what if, and those what ifs all start to build up. But if we, we let, if we allow people to go through at least, you know, fall over and hurt yourself, it's okay. It's not the end of the world because then we've got to learn new skills on how to cope with that situation. Do you think that there's perhaps a lack of skills and a lack of um, perhaps the, the the culture doesn't exist now so much of teaching us how to, to just get on and manage with things like with a um, What do you think there? Um, I think so. I mean, I've known, let's go to helicopter parents for a second. I've known helicopter parents mm -hmm. and my gut reaction was to go, mm, I don't think that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So. My gut reaction now is when you look a bit deeper, any behaviour you don't understand, mm -hmm. as a general rule, will have fear and insecurity at its heart. Yep. So when you look at helicopter parents, and there's one particular one that I used to know, is at its heart, you go, why, why, are, you so, why are you so overprotective? And it, when I dug a bit deeper, I went, okay, what's the fear and insecurity? And then it comes up, because she wouldn't let the kids participate in something that they, she thought that they would fail at. Oh, wow. So she, um, she would put, on a windy day, she'd let them play outside, but she'd put helmets on them. Okay. When you dig a bit deeper, you sort of go, oh, mm -hmm. you 
she'd had a couple of um, miscarriages. Yeah. And you start to go, well, that makes perfect sense that with that much loss and grief and fear, you would be overprotective of the kids you do have. And then with the media at the time, like especially in the, in the 90s, mm-hmm. the media at the time was your kids are going to get snatched. Mm-hmm. Um, that was before the online scariness. But, and you go, okay, with that vulnerability, that level of stress, it would make perfect sense as a mother that you would hold on to your kids mm-hmm. and not sort of, let them anywhere experience anything out of your fear and your insecurity and not realizing that that has implications. So I think there was a generation of of people who were under that sort of fearful parenting. Yep. Like, and as much as it came out as controlled and there's lots of relationships like that, fear and control, but it, if you have that fear constantly that something bad is going to happen, then you're constantly mitigating all those risks. And you see it even now, like people who truly believe something bad is going to happen, they're the ones who are in the ER. They're the ones who do see a rash and go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So I think there is that level of empathy that we need for those parents to go, what underlying fear and insecurity is driving you to these behaviours? How can we understand those? How can we let you see that maybe or help you see that the world's not as scary and almost hold your hand through that? I mean, it's, it's like we've been going on bike rides lately with my kids and Zara, who's pretty new to it, goes... Oh, I can't go down that hill. I can't go down that hill. So she's walked a few times down and up these hills. But then I go, okay, you can, you can do it. You can, like, I believe in you. It's scary, but let's go. And then she does it once. She goes, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But she's not going to do that on her own. She will only do that if supported. And then we bike along. She goes, thank you for believing in me, mummy. I'm like, watch the road. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I think we've got to look less at the behaviour and more at what is it that's driving that behaviour. Yeah, there's so much that is just at the core of it all. And I very, very much believe that that 90%, if not 100%, of our behaviours, actions, words, interactions are driven by a core emotion that is somewhere locked away inside that we don't realise is still emitting all of that energy and influencing everything that's going on for us. And on that changes too. Oh, that changes too. Like Absolutely. Yeah. And the more you become aware of it and you go, oh, okay, I can see that stupid decision I made back in the... And I can see who made it. Yeah. And it was probably my inner child that made that or my cranky teenager who made that or my inner bitch or whoever it is or like the good girl, whoever it is, made that decision. Probably not the healthy adult made that decision. No, no not, not typically the healthy adult who's able to sit there kind of nicely on the shoulder looking over going, yeah, maybe not, maybe let's look at that. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by the, the depth of your knowledge in the areas to do with psychology. Um, obviously, I think you mentioned, um, we've talked previously about your background, and you don't actually have 
a health-related background. So where... Oh, I have a health-related background, not a psychology background. Ah, okay. So tell me a bit more about that. So my background, my first degree was in applied science, exercise physiology. Oh, exercise um, Right. Okay. I knew it was applied science. I didn't realise there was the health connection. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, exercise physiology, sports science, pedagogy, um, that whole anatomy, biology, blah, blah, blah. So that was my first degree. Um, and then I worked in hospitals, and but I worked in more of a project management side, so I always had that health. But I was also um, a motivational speaker and weight loss consultant for 10 years, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, so I was constantly looking at motivation and goal setting and health and nutrition and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then when I went away to have kids, I was still project managing. And then I went back to uni when I was 40 mm -hmm. and went, okay, I know that I need to help. I don't know what that is and I don't want to help people for a profit. Mm -hmm. So I went back to uni and did non-profit and philanthropy. Okay, right. Yep. And in that I found social enterprise, which is people using business for good and have become very involved in the social enterprise world. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, lose your mind and empathy first, they are social enterprises where their sole goal is to create change. Perfect. So, and any profit goes back into creating that change mm. um so that's sort of the the twisty turny windy path that i've taken where i'm able to sort of combine now my personal experience which a lot of what i talk about is okay this is my personal experience oh look that's backed up by research this is my personal experience. oh look there we go i can bring that so personal experience mm -hmm my science background and then my project management and social enterprise sort of all come together for this lovely little um, package that we now call Lose Your Mind Empathy Training and Empathy First. Fantastic. And it's, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, just everything seems to be able to sort of fit back in and, and support what this is and what that is because of this research or that background. And similarly with me, my, my background in psychiatric nurse, nursing was a bit of a toss-up. Was I going to do psychology or was I going to do something that was more community-based? At the time, I didn't realise there was um, perhaps less of a distinction. And I ended up going down the pathway of psychiatric nursing because somebody who had helped me was a psychiatric nurse in the community, so I was a community counsellor. So I totally, absolutely sat in awe and respect for the significant help that he provided to me and so I wanted to emulate that. And at the end of the day, I realised as much as it was a fantastic learning experience and the, the exposures that I've had to some of the most dramatic illness behaviours, um, including a young woman who set fire to herself and, and had spent her days in a bodysuit. Um, and yeah, just the experiences and the exposures for me were so, so intense. But then it also brought back into my own reason, why did I become involved in that area? And that was because I had my own horrendously traumatic childhood and looking at all of the things that influenced that, I then can look for, because now I, I also speak and, and um, I'm setting up a variety of different coaching and, and health programs. And it aligns with that whole concept of what you were talking about, meaning that your background and things that happened, your own personal experiences which 
now because of the research and the knowledge that we've developed as we've gotten older, we've understood this happened, this backs up in science, and this is how we can use that very, very profound experience and the knowledge we've gained to help others. So I totally respect what you do. I think it's awesome that you're able to deliver not only just a really valuable program, but something that you are totally, I suppose, um, the embodiment of. And I, I really respect everything that you're talking about because it's so much a space for it in our world today. And I just think it's it's quite incredible. And, and kudos to you. I think you, you're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And wrapping it up today, the three questions that I love to, to ask at the end is just to recap on everything that we've talked about. So it's mm -hmm. what you do, who do you do it for, and why do you do it? So what I do is I run empathy training programs um, online or in person. Mm -hmm. And who do I do it for? Anybody with ears, but at the moment we're looking at <laughs> workplaces. So if you, you want to learn how to be more empathetic and learn the why, the what, and the how of empathy, if you want your team to learn more about being empathetic together and that empathetic language, um, or if you want your whole business, then we can do that as well. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. That's who I do it for and why I do it is because I would genuinely like to see a more empathetic world. Mm -hmm. I would genuinely, every time I see anything about mental health, it's like, oh, that person needs a hug. That person needs love. They don't need an action plan. They don't want a pamphlet. They don't want to be managed. Like, Give them a voice. Let them be heard. Um, so, yeah, so that's my why is to really create. And inadvertently in that, there's so much data that talks about empathetic workplaces having better client outcomes, better profitability, better reputation. Better um, so it's, yeah. as much as it comes back to dollars, mm -hmm. um, there are those additional benefits once you have a good mental health culture once you have an empathetic leadership team once you have an empathetic board and goes oh okay we're allowed to be human mm -hmm. and then be our role we're allowed to treat people first and project second mm -hmm. we, we will make more impact more money if we think that way and get out of that whole KPIs first, project first, um, profit first, because I don't live in that world and that world is going to dissolve. And consumers are already starting to yeah. act that way. Yeah, so. I, I totally, absolutely love the idea. That, that vision of that world to me is utopia. <laughs> I love that <laughs> So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leanne. I think that has been a really fascinating conversation. I, I wonder if there's anything else that you want to cover off. Is there any last thoughts that you want to share? Um, so Empathy First is available for pre-order. So you can go to empathyfirst.com.au mm -hmm. um, and you'll see a bunch of stuff there. Get in contact with me if you do want to learn any more. I am looking for... Um, feedback at the moment on the course so looking for some um, really key people if you're interested to work with me and give me your feedback 
Um, but yeah, the course is available for pre-order. But other than that, if I can give one little language tip, because I like to give language tips to people who go, oh, okay, well, I need to be empathetic, but I have no idea how. Mm -hmm. I want you for the next week to look at how many times you tell people or use the word should and just. Mm -hmm. And if you can get them out of your vocabulary, you're going to take massive steps towards being a more empathetic person. Um, but come along with me on the journey of my course and we'll go through the why, the what and the how and all that sort of stuff, language tips, self-reflection activity, self activities. Um, but look at whether you use the word should and just and see yeah. where your language lies. Absolutely. It was ironic you say that because a few moments ago in um, one of our parts of our conversations, I was going to pipe up and say there's one word that needs to come out of our vocabulary and that is the word should. Um, yes. so I, and that's with yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I'm very much about what words do I hear myself say and, and doing like, like I, I love journaling for that purpose because I get to see even with the written processes that I write down, I can read over it and go, oh, you see how many times I've said that same word or gone over the same thought. And if I look at the journal, I often see something that I was thinking 30 days ago is still there. And it's like, um, isn't that telling me something? So journaling is a, a great tool for that experience for myself too. So great tip. Really appreciate you sharing. And for anybody that's going to watch this uh, afterwards or whenever that podcast that I keep talking about is going to be released and when you hear it, uh, wherever this is uh, found on the platform, so it's currently YouTube, there will be all of uh, Leanne's details. You'll be able to contact her with all of Leanne's details at the bottom of the description for this particular video. It's been an absolute pleasure, Leanne. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to seeing amazing things coming from the um, empathy training that you're delivering and it certainly has global impact and I look forward to seeing that happen. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks,